This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK, talking about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. Later in this hour, Mike Davis talks about L.A. in the 60s, the fight against the LAPD in four black lives that continues today. And Ella Taylor will feature a documentary now on TV about the legal battles of the past few years fighting for immigrant rights, voting rights, abortion rights, and LGBTQ rights. First up, what's happening in Portland with those federal forces? They're fighting demonstrators in the streets. They were sent by Trump against the wishes of the mayor and the governor. And what is to be done about them? For that, we turn to David Cole. He's national legal director of the ACLU and legal correspondent for The Nation. David, welcome back. Great to be here. I want to start with Attorney General William Barr, who testified before Congress on Tuesday. He said that uh, what's happening in Portland is a, a consequence of the fact that local police abandoned a federal courthouse while rioters and vandals, quote, laid siege to it, close quote, that this threatened the functioning of the federal court system. And he said, quote, what unfolds nightly around the courthouse cannot reasonably be called a protest. It is by any objective measure an assault on the government of the United States, close quote. Would you call the events in Portland an assault on the government of the United States? I think what we've seen is an assault by the government of the United States on peaceful protesters. Um, and, uh, and I think it's, it's clear what Trump is doing here. Uh, he is escalating the federal response because he wants to spur violent protests. He wants images of people throwing rocks, uh, you know, in, in through windows and the like, because that plays into his law and order narrative but he's the one who's creating the violence. He's sparking the violence. If you look at what happened um, you know, uh, after he cleared protesters so that he could have a photo op, it spurred violence. When he pulled back, and generally speaking, when city and, and local officials have pulled back, the protests have been peaceful, with some exceptions to be sure, but generally peaceful. Whether it's local police or the federal uh, officials, the more they escalate, it sparks uh, escalation on the other side. And that's exactly what Trump wants. The uh, ACLU of Oregon has gone to court and actually has won some important decisions in the last uh, week. Tell us where we stand with those. You know, this is our bread and butter at the ACLU is defending the right to protest and suing federal and state officials who uh, violate that right. And so um, we've been in court around the Portland protest before uh, the feds showed up uh, and we remain in court um, and we have gotten injunctions barring uh, the use of tear gas, for example, against peaceful protests and barring uh, a practice, a, a disturbing practice of targeting uh, legal observers and journalists um, by uh, by both police and by the by the feds. And we're back in court now seeking contempt uh, against the federal government for violating the injunction we obtained, barring it from targeting uh, legal observers and uh, and journalists. I mean, you know, if you're what you're concerned about is protecting federal property, you ought not be targeting legal observers uh, and journalists. 
I wonder about the constitutional issues here when the mayor and the governor are opposing these, the deployment of these federal forces. What authority does the president have to send, I guess it's the Border Patrol and the U.S. Marshals against the wishes of, of the mayor and the governor? I think the federal government has the authority to defend its own property. Uh, and it doesn't depend on whether the mayor of Portland agrees with them or not. Um, but I do think that they have to abide by the Constitution in the way that they do that. And so, you know, we have not argued that they have no authority to be there. They don't need to be there. Their being there has made the problem worse. And, and, and when they have um, violated constitutional rights in the way that they have been there, uh, we've gone to court to, to challenge that. There was a report in the New York Times on Wednesday, U.S. and Oregon in talks about pulling, pulling agents out of Portland. That's kind of surprising to those of us who were very preoccupied with the fact that Trump was promising to send more to Portland and also to Seattle and Chicago and, you know, Baltimore and lots of other places. What do you know about the negotiations, if anything? So, so I, don't, I don't know much about the negotiations, but I will say this, you know, the I think there are federal agents who are interested in doing the right thing. There are and and, and cooperating with uh, local officials. You know, in order to do effective law enforcement, the federal government and state and local officials have to cooperate often, and they do. When you have a president who, for his own political reelection purposes, abuses his authority and sends troops in against the will of the local folks, uh, you undermine the ability to cooperate that is so central to doing effective law enforcement. So I think what you're seeing is, you know, there are some line people who are trying to maintain the relationship, but you've got a president who doesn't care about those relationships, doesn't care about actually responding to the problem. What he cares about is creating a problem so that he can sell himself as the president who will deliver law and order. But, you know, as opposed to the president who has delivered 140,000 uh, COVID deaths, the president who has, uh, you know, failed miserably to respond to the greatest crisis that this country uh, faces, which is uh, the coronavirus, and a president who is trying to generate a problem so that he can present himself as the solution to the problem. I mean, it's, it's crazy. And of course, the, the underlying issue of the protests in Portland and everywhere else in America, hundreds and hundreds of places in America over the last month is the movement for black lives, which has raised the slogan, defund the police. Defund the police, of course, means, means different things to different people. The, the Movement for Black Lives website explains, quote, defunding the police doesn't mean an immediate elimination of all law enforcement, nor does it mean immediately zeroing out police department budgets. What does the ACLU think our priorities should be on this front? So I think, you know, divest from the police would be a better uh, way of describing it. I don't think anybody's really talking about abolishing police altogether. Um, I think what they're concerned about is the, 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 the way in which we have sort of put a wide range of social problems 
uh, in the hands of the police. And they're not necessarily the best situated to respond to mental health problems, to respond to school disciplinary problems, to respond to, you know, um, you know ordinary kind of garden level uh, disputes, it, we could do much better. And, uh, and so what, and at the same time that we have invested in police, we have divested from all kinds of other social services that would respond to the root problems that uh, are, are that underlie crime in 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 many uh, inner city communities, and so um, I think that the call is really let's invest in those communities in some form other than police and prisons. Let's invest in schools. Let's invest in aftercare programs. Let's invest in job training. Let's invest in businesses, uh, and that's the positive way to respond to uh, you know the problem of of racial injustice. Uh, whereas policing, uh, the, the policing the problem just exacerbates the problem of racial injustice, as we've seen time and time again uh, on the streets and in the videos uh, that it flood YouTube. You recently wrote in the New York Review uh, that most of the abusive, violent behavior of cops against people of color begins with the enforcement of petty crimes. You know, I didn't, I've never really thought about that that way before, but you can list all, all of the people who were killed by the police and it started out with uh, being pulled over for a taillight uh, or not signaling a lane change or selling loose cigarettes or whatever. If we pursue this line of thinking that, that the enforcement of misdemeanors is the cause of way too much police violence against people of color. Where, where do we go next with that? So, so exactly. I mean, misdemeanor uh, enforcement is a sort of rarely studied uh, issue, but it is really the vast majority of what the police do. You know, they, they're not spending most of their time responding to murders and armed robberies and rapes. They're spending most of their time arresting people for loitering or for disorderly conduct or jaywalking or riding without a seatbelt. I mean, incredibly low or, or marijuana possession, incredibly low level offenses. And, and there are so many arrests for misdemeanors. There are 13 million arrests for misdemeanors a year, every year. And what does that mean? It means that 50% of black men will be arrested by the time they, they turn 23, 50%. And for white men, it's close to 40% will be arrested by the time they turn 23. We are just arresting far too many people for, for, for really low level offenses that don't pose a, a threat of violence or serious harm uh, to others, get people involved in the criminal justice system, create these police citizen encounters, which often escalate and lead to violence. And so one way to defund the police, to divest from police would be to reduce enforcement of these low level crimes, which are often an excuse for police surveillance and police monitoring and police intervention, rather than an actual response to an actual problem that needs an arrest a booking, you know, a, an appearance in court, a conviction, 
a criminal record for that person's uh, uh, long life. So, um, you know, in that review, I was reviewing a book by Sasha Natapoff, who's, who's a professor at Harvard Law School, who wrote a book about the, you know, sort of untold story of misdemeanor prosecutions. And she makes a tremendously powerful case that, you know, one of the real reforms we could introduce is just reducing those, uh, the, those kinds of enforcements. You have a wonderful line. The truth is that we are all misdemeanants. No one has ever called me a misdemeanant before. Well, not to your face, they haven't. But, you know, the, yeah, the reality, I mean, when you think about it, when, you know, jaywalking is a, is a misdemeanor. Loitering is a misdemeanor, which is, you know, often defined as walking around without any uh, obvious purpose. Well, I, I do that all the time and pretty much every day these days. Uh, so, yeah. And then who gets arrested, right? When you look at th- these kinds of offenses that virtually everybody or, you know, or drive, you know, committing some traffic infraction, when you look at these kinds of offenses that virtually everybody commits and you ask who actually gets stopped, who actually gets arrested, the figures are, um, you know, disproportionately African-American and Latino men, young men, are the ones who get stopped, searched, arrested, booked, and convicted for these kinds of crimes that everybody um, commits across the board. And it's, you know, in part because it's so, it's so widespread, it kind of gives the police open, it makes it open season for the police. And they go into a, a community that they think is, I don't, I don't think most of them are going in to say, let's arrest a black person or let's arrest a, a, a Latino uh, man, but they're going into communities that they think are, um, are, are crime, uh, have serious crime problems. And then they use these tools to sort of, you know, enforce a kind of martial law where they can stop anybody, show me your papers, tell me who you are, and then arrest you for a very minor offense. And in, in, on some theory that somehow this is going to deal with problems of, of, you know, serious gang violence or, or, or drug traffic and the like, and it just doesn't. Of course, there is a theory behind misdemeanor enforcement. It's called broken windows. It's the work of James Q. Wilson, the famous Harvard criminologist, that if you enforce the petty crimes, you will stop the serious crimes because the same people are criminals, namely young males, people of color. That's the theory that our police departments have been taught for the last uh, 20 years. So it is a theory. Um, I, I don't think the evidence in, in, uh, of its practice really... Um, bears it out. And, I, you know, I think well, and from, from one perspective, yeah, sure it works. If you arrest everybody, you're going to reduce <laughs> violent crime because some of the people you arrest will be violent criminals. But that's hardly, uh, you know, the, an, a, a rational or humane way to uh, deal with the problem of violent crime, which is committed by a very small uh, subset of people in, our, in, in, our, in all of our communities. And, and secondly, when you look at the, the record, you know, you just, it just doesn't um, support the notion that broken windows is the, is the key. Take New York City, right? New York City is sort of where broken windows and stop and frisk policing, that's where it was sort of done most aggressively. And it was often pointed to as, see, they put this in place and what happened? Crime dropped dramatically. But in fact, what you see when you look at the, the data is that during the period that stop and frisk was used aggressively in New York and crime dropped dramatically, crime was dropping dramatically across the country, including in many cities that did not use 
uh, stop and frisk and bro broken windows policies. And then secondly, when uh, New York stopped using uh, stop and frisk, right, when in response to a lawsuit that the Center for Constitutional Rights brought, uh, Mayor Bloomberg then came, I mean, I mean Mayor um, de Blasio came in and on a platform to, to end the practice. And they went from a practice where they were stopping 685,000 people a year in, in stop and frisks to today where they stop about 20,000 a year. And crime has not increased. Crime has not gone up. So if that was so central to the keeping crime down, then you would expect crime to have increased in the many years now that they have not been engaged in that practice, and it hasn't. So, um, you know, I think it's a myth that broken windows is the way to go. Uh, and, you know, and, and except for the, you know, it's, it's rational in the sense, as I said before, if you arrest everybody, you're going to catch some bad guys. But that is not the way uh, the criminal justice system, you know, properly operates. David Cole, he's National Legal Director of the ACLU, and he wrote about how less punishment would lead to more justice for the New York Review. Thank you, David. Thanks for having me. It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK and online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Now it's time for Virus Time TV. Ella Taylor's ideas about what to watch this week. Ella, of course, is a longtime film critic and writer whose work has appeared in the New York Times, the L.A. Weekly, and at NPR.org. We reached her today at home in Santa Monica, Ella, welcome back. Thank you, John. Glad to be here. Greetings. Well, this week you've been watching a documentary about a scrappy team of heroic ACLU lawyers fighting for immigrant rights, voting rights, abortion rights, and LGBTQ rights. It's called The Fight. I should disclose at the outset that I'm a board member of the ACLU of Southern California, so it could be that my view of the scrappy and heroic ACLU lawyers in this documentary is not a, a neutral one. <laughs> Neither is mine, full disclosure. I have a standing order to them, um, mainly because of the issues that are covered in this film, uh, which has a, a wonderful flair for building tension and stress. It deals with issues that have really pretty much got on the back burner during the COVID crisis, so it couldn't come at a better moment and uh, it, it follows four uh, doughty um, ACLU lawyers as they um, take their cases on issues from immigration, abortion rights, uh, LGBTQ rights, uh, and the, the question of whether the census should uh, include a question about citizenship, which we now know they won. <laughs> but in particular, also the heartbreaking and enraging situation of uh, immigrant children's separation from their parents, which continues today. Most of these ACL, ACLU lawyers have no idea how to use a phone charger or uh, <laughs> tech, but they're very, very good at, at uh, doggedly pursuing their case. 
um, in a situation and taking it to a Supreme Court, which is getting more and more stacked with ultra right wing conservatives. And the movie uh, is very good at uh, building the drama of time because they are constantly working against the clock. Um, they pursue a case of a transgender man who has been ousted from the military. And uh, the movie is particularly upsetting on the issue of child-parent separation, but we do see some children united, reunited with their parents um, from individual fights that the ACL lawyers took on their behalf. And it, while it's gratifying to see that happen, it's actually in, completely enraging to know that there are still 1,300 kids who are separate, small children who are separated from their parents. As a parent, I, I found it completely devastating that, and the thought of the psychic damage that that is going to do in the long run really gives you pause. My, my favorite part is the uh, sort of the behind the scenes preparations for arguing at the Supreme Court, which, you know, I'm, I'm a professor, so I know what it's like to stand up before 300 uh, freshmen and sophomores, to stand up before nine Supreme Court justices. That really makes you nervous and you practice in front of the mirror. And if you muff your lines, you know, you feel pretty worried about what's going to happen. And there's, there's a certain amount of that, which is anxiety producing, but also fascinating to watch. It is, yes. And, and I, I, you know, my, my solution for that, as, as with podcasting and radio, is to pretend that you're speaking only to one person. And it's amazing how that quiets the mind. <laughs> now you tell me. Now you tell me. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> so the fight is streaming everywhere. Amazon Prime, YouTube, Google Play, Apple TV. So after watching the documentary about the scrappy and heroic ACLU lawyers, what if I were in the mood for a fictional drama about power, politics, and money in a family that controls an international media conglomerate? Can you recommend anything? As it happens, purely spontaneously, I can. And here's an artful segue for you. Um, one of the things about the fight is that it's also a portrait of a cruel and he heedless and bigoted society. And they actually play um, the vo the, some of the extraordinarily hate-filled voicemails that they get. And the the... HBO series Succession, which I have been absolutely glued to, and I've polished off two seasons in about three nights. That is the world, the heedless, bigoted, and, and power-hungry world it describes. Um, the creator is, is the British um, producer and director, Jesse Armstrong, and it's a brilliantly written uh, fictional story of a very rich pathologically toxic family that abuses its money and power and whose members all abuse one another. Um, the patriarch is played by uh, Logan. He's played by the extraordinary Irish actor, Brian Cox, and he's absolutely marvelous. And there are all sorts of parallels with the real world, which I don't need to spell out um, <laughs> about who he is. And uh, the wonderful thing about the series as it goes through is that it's written in such a way that none of them realizes just how awful they are uh, to themselves, to each other, or how weak and vulnerable and lost they are as a result of this, um, of 
extraordinary bad parenting and the fact that they never need to do anything for themselves, including eating, <laughs> um, being served food and all the normal things of life, as a result of which they all live in this bubble um, in which their only contact with real people um, is the people who serve them uh, with some tragic consequences. It hasn't, the this series has many, many tones. Um, there's a wonderful turn by Holly Hunter as a CEO who crosses lines from one company to another. Um, it's really quite deliciously terrible. Matthew McFadden, the British actor who's playing an American here, is, is uh, brilliant as a somewhat ineffectual add-on husband who just keeps getting it all wrong. And as a result of his ineffectiveness, is extraordinarily abusive to those who work for him. So the series is often very, very funny. It's very witty. Um, and each of the children of this father is a loser in particular ways who thinks that they're winners. And that is the conceit of the, of the um, movie. Uh, the, sorry, I keep calling it a movie, the TV series. There's a wonderful turn also by the Palestinian actress Hayam Abbas as uh, the patriarch's latest wife, who plays her cards very close to her, her chest. And uh, Jeremy Strong as the eldest son who just keeps on trying and keeps on getting it wrong until the end of, of season two. And I'm not going to divulge um, how that goes. I do think that, um, that all of these characters don't understand what a friend of mine who's a therapist once said, which is that everybody gets fired in the end. <laughs> um, well, one of the boldest things about succession is there, there's nobody who's really likable in this at all. The, all the members of this family are, you know, reprehensible in different ways. And, you know, this is kind of unusual. There's nobody who we identify with, admire, appreciate, hope for. They're, they're, uh, they're all horrible people. Yes, I, I kind of identified with those who are being terribly bullied since I was a bit of a bullied, bullied child. But uh, yes, you're absolutely right. And that includes, interestingly, the women. In many series of this kind, it's the women who make everything all right and get people to pay attention to each other and blah, blah, blah. It's not like that in this one. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there have been many, many movies and television series about this kind of subject. This one does it particularly well. Some people think it's a very cynical series. I am not sure um, because there are moments in the in the movie that are incredibly moving um, in the TV series. Sorry, I, I don't want to say which because I think it would ruin it. Um, but there are the haplessness of these kids, who not only had a tyrannical father who played them off against each other, but it turns out also had a pretty terrible mother uh, who's wonderfully played by the British actress uh, Harriet Walter uh, in some episodes that go to a stately home in, in England. <laughs> so it is very funny, but it's also enormously sad because this guy has destroyed his children. It's not only that, uh, that he's rapacious in, in his business dealings, but he has also essentially disabled 
uh, all his children. There's a marvelous scene near the beginning of the first season where the son who has endless projects, in, including becoming president of the United States, and he uh, comes to his father's 80th, 80th birthday party, and everybody else has given the father cars and so on. He gives him a sourdough starter. <laughs> <laughs> So we've been talking about the, the uh, pathologically toxic, wealthy family in succession. That's uh, on HBO. We have a few minutes left for one more recommendation. To recover from extraordinarily bad parenting, where could we turn? We could turn to an HBO documentary that opened yesterday um, called Stockton on My Mind. And it's a, a pretty great documentary about the 29-year-old millennial African-American mayor of the town of of Stockton um, in California. Uh, His name is Michael Tubbs. He had a terrible family life. Um, His mother seems great, but his father was a gang member who is still in prison and with whom he really hasn't known him. Um, They have an on-off relationship now. But he ended up going to Stanford where he met his extraordinarily lovely African-American wife who appears very charmingly in the movie. Stockton uh, was one of the, t- the first American towns to declare bankruptcy in the 2008 recession. It has been beset um, with uh, poverty, crime, uh, and a complete drop in uh, rise in, in unemployment. And what this dynamic and uh, very charismatic young man has done is found a way uh, to give universal basic income to uh, its citizens, as well as um, scholarships to young people uh, and an advanced peace project that uh, helps people who have been incarcerated. Um, And he's done that also by community involvement, but he's also done it primarily by raising private funds. Now, I mean, he raised millions, if not if not billions, and I can see why, because he is extraordinarily charismatic and occasionally very short-tempered. <laughs> um, but as a European watching this film, I was quite aghast that this town had to be bailed out with private funding. What you the the between the lines, what you read of this documentary from this documentary, is that in the absence of a, a, a viable social safety net, these people had essentially been abandoned by the state, um, and he was able to walk that back. But it's not really a viable model for the whole country um, because there is no social safety net. So there is a kind of subtext here that's worth paying attention to. But that said, it's both a delightful and a very powerful documentary. We've been talking about Stockton on My Mind, the documentary about a city where this amazing new black mayor, young Michael Tubbs, took what was bad and made it good. It's on HBO. We also talked about The Fight, the documentary about the legal battles for voting rights, immigrant rights, abortion rights, and LGBTQ rights. The Fight is streaming everywhere, Amazon Prime, YouTube, Google Play, Apple TV. And we also talked about Succession, the drama 
about the power-mad family fighting for control of a right-wing media empire. That's on HBO. And of course, we've been speaking with Ella Taylor, our guide to TV during the pandemic days. Ella, thanks again for talking with us today. Always fun to talk to you, John. It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK and online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Now we want to talk about L.A. in the 60s with comments from Mike Davis, activist and writer, author of the classic history of L.A. City of Quartz. Now he's got a new book out. It's called Set the Night on Fire, L.A. in the 60s. Mike talked recently about his own political education in the 60s at an online event sponsored by DSA LA. Megan Day asked Mike about his path to politics and activism in LA in the 60s. In uh, the fall of 1964, after a brief and disastrous college experience, I took a Greyhound bus to New York to work in the National Office of Students for Democratic Society. And I'd grown up in a blue-collar suburb, and I had no idea what the American left really was. So the first thing I started asking people in the office is, are you communists? Should I be a communist? Who are the communists? And within a week, I had been completely uh, disabused to the idea that the Communist Party had any relevancy whatsoever to the emerging anti-war movement, civil rights struggle, and so on. I mean, in New York, there was still thousands of paper members, but it was an irrelevant factor for the most part. Then I ended up being sent by SDS to uh, LA in the summer of 1965. And I quickly discovered that the most formidable left voice in the city was a woman named Dorothy Healy, who was the district organizer of the Southern California Communist Party. And unlike the other old left groups and the CP itself, which had taken a very sectarian and hostile attitude toward SDS and other new left formations, she'd set up a new left school, invited me to teach a class and then to debate her. And I was stunned. Uh, she just mopped the floor with me. This is somebody who quit or kicked out of high school at age 16 to mount a soapbox and the Oakland waterfront stirring the unemployed, had fought through the great farm workers and cannery struggles, and had come to L.A. and uh, risen to be party uh, leader. And even though we fought like cats and dogs, and she also expelled me from two different groups, she remains the most important moral and intellectual influence in my life. She's totally self-educated. Her university, as she put it, was the class struggle. Now, Dorothy was a key person in, in the communist movement at a time right at the end of the Second World War, when the Southern California Communist Party was not the largest group in the country, but it was the most diverse and in many ways the most successful urban party. It had people, crack organizers everywhere, in the AFL craft unions, as well as in the CIO and the black community, Jewish community, on the east side, it had prominent intellectuals and New Deal figures 
and also a large penumbra of, of people who are not themselves communists, but look to Dorothy and other local communists for ideas and, and leadership. This is something that would persist all through Dorothy's life. Uh, in the late 60s, I remember going to her little house in South Central LA and the person walking out the door might be <laughs> uh, might be the city attorney or one of the Panther leaders, major union figures who would never associate in public with the communists, went to her. And Dorothy, at the beginning of the McCarthy period, was determined not to let what had been accomplished destroyed. LA had a small mass left-wing party, about 8,000 people, and it was capable of exercising a huge influence on the city, building multiracial coalitions and fighting in all kinds of fronts. Dorothy once told me that she thought the, uh, when the party leadership was ordered underground in the early 1950s, she thought it was like a Marx Brothers comedy. She duly followed that and ended up being uh, arrested. The leadership of the party spent months and months in jail they tried for something called the Smith Act, which put communists in other parts of the country in prison for years, years and years. But it, all through this period, she continued to preserve links with progressive liberals and to reach out to new forces. This is why her openness to, to the new left was something that was actually shocking. So they were a pool of attraction because they had young black leaders, because they had organizers who basically uh, were cut from the same cloth as most of us on the new left. This was a group that had an exceptionally important role, despite the fact that the actual numbers of key organizers and young people were small. And it had one of the most extraordinary people on the American left perpetually young, perpetually still the same uh, fiery young communist leader she'd been in 1928 at the helm of it. And the influence she cast was tremendous, particularly later on, on um, uh, socialist feminism became important. So many women looked to her as a kind of role model. So in other words, LA breaks the mold of the irrelevance of, of the old left. Mike was asked about the origins of the modern LAPD. Turns out it was the work of one man, William Parker, Bill Parker, chief of the LAPD in the 50s and the 60s. Parker joined the LAPD in 1927, and he soon got a law degree. And during the 1930s, he played a crucial role inside the police union, the Fire and Police Protective League. First of all, in crafting an amendment to, to the charter of the city of Los Angeles. And this charter amendment provided in the name of fighting uh, boss control over the city, provided that the LAPD itself would be exclusively responsible for investigating the LAPD. In other words, it made the LAPD almost completely autonomous of city government. In 1937, he drew up another uh, amendment, which gave essentially life tenure to chiefs of, of police, something he would take advantage of uh, for more than 30 years. During the Second World War, 
Parker rose rapidly in the ranks of military police and ended up being responsible for the policing plan to accompany uh, D-Day and the invasion of France. And so he gained wide experience for several years in administering martial law, which of course became his favorite mode of, of, of policing, unrestricted by uh, police commissions or ethical committees and, and the like. He's usually described as having been the one who cleaned out the arguing stables of the LAPD. But in fact, that was a, a different police chief who was brought in for a single year, William Wharton, who uh, was a major general in the Marine Corps and also a famous spy. He'd been in charge of espionage in Japan. And as Wharton was weeding out the bad apples in 1949, he turned to Marine veterans as uh, a source of honest cops. And he transformed the police academy into a kind of miniature Paris Island. And that Marine-like mold has stuck to the LAPD to this very day. Parker, on Orton's uh, recommendation, became chief in 1950. He had two extraordinary skills. He was, on one hand, a master extortionist and blackmailer. And secondly, he was an unparalleled publicist for himself. On the blackmail side, the LAPD during the 20s and 30s, when it had been the arm wing of the open shop in Los Angeles, had, of course, a red squad, which tapped phones and accumulated a huge archive of, of, of stuff. Uh, not just on the left, but on the city politicians. Parker had experience with that. He continued to enlarge uh, the archive until it was second only to uh, the Black Book and J. Edgar Hoover's office. Hoover and Parker, by the way, were enemies and uh, lifelong uh, rivals. And he used this spy information, this intelligence, from wiretapping everybody's phone and having uh, planted uh, police spies in different bodies to drive several uh, leading liberals out of politics. Uh, in one case, was Stanley Mosk, who was the liberal uh, state attorney general under uh, in the first term of, uh, of the Brown administration, the Edmund Brown administration. Mosk thought that Parker had to be reined in, that he was nothing but a wild enemy of of civil rights, but Parker blackmailed him and uh, Mosk was forced to quit a campaign for the Senate. And there are many examples of that. And these secret files uh, did not disappear on Parker's death in 1966. They continued to be one of the primary uh, weapons used by the elite in the LAPD. Secondly, as a publicist, my God, he had 20 cops simply devoted to public relations. And this mainly meant working with the newspapers and with Hollywood. And when Dragnet came out, he immediately realized that this program could become an incredible mouthpiece for the police and its view of the city. And that's the reason, the inception of the just astonishing number of television programs and movies that have lionized the LAPD. In some, the police culture he created was 
militarized. He took the cops off the street, put them in cars. But he saw as one of his prime functions, more important than arresting Mickey Cohen or driving the mob off the Sunset Strip, was policing segregation in a way helping to create segregation, enforce it in Los Angeles. He ordered his cops to stop, frisk, and and many times arrest any African-American after dark on the west side of LA or in Hollywood. He conducted an incredible years-long war against biracial entertainment, helped to destroy the integrated rhythm and blues scene and jazz scene on Central Avenue. Dolphins of Hollywood was a famous black record store, which had many white customers. He put a cop outside of Dolphins for months to uh, turn away people. And back in the, you know, the 60s, I think it was pretty clear to all of us that the problem was not Parker himself, but this machine, this kind of Leviathan that he created and then proceeded to hand down through the next four or five successors. Mike Davis on the origins of the modern LAPD, central drama of Set the Night on Fire LA in the 60s. Well, that's it for today's Trump Watch. I want to thank our engineer, D'Angelo Jones, our producer, Renee Reynolds. As always, we thank Ry Cooter for our theme music, Mambo Sinuendo. Hey, Trump Watchers, if you missed part of the show or of any of our recent shows, listen online anytime you want to trumpwatchpodcast.com. Trump Watch returns next week at the same time on the same station with more talk about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.